Hello, I'm Roderick Chambers, and you're listening to Money Dearest. Money Dearest is a podcast series focusing on the growing concern of elder abuse and is brought to you by the Sydney Community Foundation, the Perkins Family Foundation, and to SERFM. It is estimated that one in ten older Australians are experiencing some type of elder abuse, and a majority of those are female. The overwhelming perpetrators of abuse come from the victim's own family. In this podcast, we're going to look at the broad continuum of abuse in discussion with Kay Papadopoulos, Senior Solicitor at the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian's Office, Carolyn Smith from the Supported Decision-Making Team at the New South Wales Public Guardian, and Michael Perkins, Special Counsel for the Nexus Law Group. Kay Papadopoulos, we often think of abuse in terms of physical abuse, but there's quite a few ways in which people can be abused. Could you explain how they differ? There are multiple different types of abuse, and it's important to note that more than one can be perpetrated at a time, Um, and some types of abuse are also criminal offences. So types of abuse include financial abuse, which is using someone's money, property or other assets illegally or improperly, or forcing them to change their will or sign documents. Um, We understand this is one of the most common form of abuse seen. There's also other types as well. So there's social abuse, which can be forcing someone to become isolated by restricting their access to others, including family, friends or services. And in a way, this can also be used to prevent other people from finding out about the abuse. Another type of abuse is emotional or psychological abuse. So that includes things like using threats, humiliation or harassment, which can cause distress and feelings of shame, stress or powerlessness. And we find that that type of abuse often occurs in combination with other forms of abuse. There's also physical abuse. So that could be inflicting pain or injury on someone by hitting, slapping, pushing or also using restraints. Another form of abuse is neglect. So that's failing to provide the basic necessities of life. And it's interesting to note that that can be either intentional or unintentional. And there's also sexual abuse, which is sexual activity for which the person has not consented. So you can see there that there's a a broad variety of types of abuses that can be perpetrated against someone. Yes, and and Michael Perkins, you've been involved many years uh, with uh, people in estate planning and as a solicitor in the area. What are some of the things that happens when it comes to you that's gone too far? The first question uh, I get, and indeed uh, had in a phone call with a new client this morning, saying, my husband who has a brain injury has just done this, uh, do I have a right to intervene? So I think it's important for people to understand that they do have rights to intervene. We do have a age discrimination commissioner now in New South Wales that has got powers of investigation. So uh, if people are, are concerned, concern is a sufficient cause uh, to trigger a report now. And I think it's very important that people understand that it's not you can do more than just call a helpline. And uh, so that's generally the first point of contact. The second thing is that uh, we've got to be careful to make sure that any response to concern is actually appropriate. And indeed, in the conversation that I had this morning, 
Uh, it was a matter of saying, look, I think the first thing we under- need to understand is why has this c- conduct occurred? What is the what is the purpose of it? What is the intention behind it? Because we might be having the right thing done for the wrong reasons or the wrong way. We need to understand first uh, the context for the, con- the conduct that's causing the concern. Then we can worry about how we deal with responses. And this is where I think the new uh, commissioner uh, can provide a very good uh, service in terms of early intervention. And I think the key message here that we need to put is um, don't wait for the wheels to fall off the family truck. Uh, If you are concerned, if you see uh, someone's situation deteriorating, it is time to stand up and do something. You know, uh, it's too late uh, when the damage is done. It's what we want to try and encourage people to do with the new commissioner is uh, get involved early. And one of the things, things, uh, Carolyn Smith, when we're getting involved, it can be not just about the finances of a person, it can be about the care of a person. And that's where jobs come to you in Mm. terms of the guardianship, where you have to take over the decision-making for people. Give us a bit of an idea of how that happens. Sometimes when the situations have got to a point where the person can't make the decision for themselves anymore because they've been deemed um, unable and they are in a situation where they they might need protection from abuse. Uh, We, the public guardian, may be appointed with um, health and welfare functions. So things like accommodation where someone might live, the services that they might need, the doctors that they might need to see or the medication that they might need to have. Um, We are appointed at the absolute end of the line. We are the last resort because we are a government agency who is stepping in and essentially um, because the person can't uphold their own decision-making rights, we have to uphold them for them. So it's quite stressful for everyone involved and often quite traumatic situations where there is family dysfunction, where we have to step in and really try to get to know the person in crisis and or in difficult circumstances and then make decisions hopefully the decisions that they would have made for themselves but sometimes not if there is um, if they're at risk of abuse or harm and of course the other side of it um, Kay is is the financial side or the legal side perhaps it's when documents need to be signed when uh, when money needs to be transferred or someone needs to take over the running of someone's uh, affairs how do you find it when people come to you? What are the sort of things that are the main areas of contention? So so if we're appointed financial manager um, and we're making financial decisions for them, some common areas of concern that we look at are, for example, where there have been unexplained transactions, um, for example, large bank withdrawals before that. There might be significant changes to a will. There might be unexplained disappearance of belongings or transfer of assets from that person's Jewellery and things, yeah. Well, well also, you find real property. I mean, you might ah, have an mm. investment property, which, you know, in the current property market is not insignificant, being transferred into somebody else's name for below market consideration or, or nil, you know, no funds. They might have an inability to pay bills or access their bank accounts, etc. So they're the sorts of things that, you know, we do look at. And so, Michael Perkins, this is probably a result of family dysfunction and when people aren't operating in the way that is in the best interests of their family member. And what are the sort of things you've found in your practice when it's come to your uh, to stage where you are needed? 
Luckily, most of the times uh, it's at the proposal stage uh, and uh, people coming in saying, is this possible, can we do it? Occasionally it is a discovery problem that someone comes in and says, oh no, this has been done, can, you, can we remediate it? Inevitably, um, any of these problems come because of financial stress in families. That is the big trigger. And uh, I think that um, the problem is generally generated because the person who is being abused, for whatever reason, does not have the ability to speak up for themselves. So when we're looking at saying, well, okay, uh, what do we do? The first thing we have to try and do is work out who can speak for the person uh, concerned. It is early days for the Disability uh, Commissioner in New South Wales. I think they will be a tool to help us deal with this because from a legal point of view, uh, we have a problem. Uh, we have a legal system that is focused on substitute decision-making. So once someone gives a power of attorney, they give enormous scope for someone to use their property and potentially benefit themselves. So what can you do to stop this? Well, at the moment, it's all about family education and trying to get families to have a, a straightforward plan for how they're going to care and for the person concerned and what resources are, are going to be used to support that. Families for years have been making loans to one another and helping, helping each other out. You can't necessarily say just because someone needs help, it should not be given. The issue is, how does that uh, decision or proposal sit in relation to the overall welfare, care and needs of the, the older person? Uh, so uh, the proposals that exist in the New South Wales government at the moment to change the Guardianship Act and bring in a more formal system of recognising supported decision-making is, I think, a good thing, but it has a, uh, a large impact on how people approach these problems. So uh, what we come back to is a need to understand um, how we can best educate families to row in the same boat. That public education uh, is, I think, our most immediate challenge. And from our point of view as lawyers, we find that we're using our alternate dispute resolution and skills as the first point of trying to respond to these issues, not just running off to court straight away, because that will always be the most disruptive, alienating, disempowering solution. So we try and land people in a softer place uh, where relationships can be, rem can be remediated and the person's interest uh, who is under care, who is of diminished capacity for whatever reason, is going to have a fair voice in whatever is happening. You're listening to the Money Dearest podcast. I'm Roderick Chambers, and I'm here with Kay Papadopoulos from the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian, Carolyn Smith from the Office of the New South Wales Public Guardian, and Michael Perkins, Special Counsel from the Nexus Law Group. New South Wales is currently looking at moving to a new approach, which has been introduced in Victoria by focusing on what is someone's will and preference, rather than just taking over a person's affairs in their best interests, a sort of more paternalistic view. 
Uh, but Kay, could this make it more difficult for people in your role at the New South Wales Trustees Office as you're the last resort and you must take over a person's affairs? It certainly will. Um, having said that though, there's generally times where I, I do try and call the client to find out their views on something, but it, if, if the new changes come in, that that will definitely have a huge implication. Because this has already happened in Victoria, hasn't it? And we've got some idea of what may happen, but nevertheless, the legislation, we don't know what it's going to be like, so we're not sure. So I guess we're in this panel here, we're trying to look at the ways in which people should respond mm. to this. And Carolyn, the way that we move to this, one of the ways that that has really gained some great currency is to get supported decision-making in when there is some cognitive decline, when there is some decline in the individual. Yeah, so there is a really big push, not just in New South Wales, but nationally and across the world, really, that relates back to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities that says that we should be doing everything from a person-centred practice. Everyone has human rights and everyone should be able to access those human rights. And some people are going to need extra support to access those rights. And that trickles all the way down to our agency at Trustee and Guardian and the Public Guardian where we currently make decisions in someone's best interests. Now, of course, we will seek the views of the person where we can, but we're not bound by those views. And this significant shift that is coming, and as you said, Victoria has changed their guardianship legislation, that'll be coming into effect in March 2020. Um, So they will be the test case, if you like, in Australia as to how this is going to work in a substitute space. But in the meantime, in New South Wales and other states across Australia, we are trying to push the boundaries around doing supported decision-making, which is essentially saying everyone should be given as much support as possible so that they can make as many decisions for themselves that they can. And that's a real flip from saying, I'm going to make a decision that I think is best for the person because I could potentially have a conflict of interest. I might unduly influence that person because I really do think that it's better that they live in an aged care facility rather than at home because they might fall over at home and hurt themselves. And that's going to make me feel good. But how's it going to make the person feel who's lived in that house for 70 years and they don't want to go? So we really need to ask that person, what do you want and how can we make it happen for you? What support do you need in order for us to give you the life that you choose? And there's sort of some moves towards that area with uh, the the uh, uh, increase in home care facilities and ageing in place and that sort of thing. So we're sort of moving in that direction, but there's going to be a lot more required, isn't there? Yeah, so we are. So um, governments um, are working towards having stronger communities. We're part of the new Stronger Communities Cluster. There's a um, new aged care charter. There's new aged care standards. The Royal Commission into Aged Care and Disability is going to be helping us in this space. So we are all moving towards a person-centred approach and it is quite a challenge for a lot of us because it requires us to take time to hear the person, to get to know the person and that is significant resources. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. But it's also about community. We can't, this isn't just government, it isn't just private, it's everyone. We all have to get better at this because we are all heading in the same direction We have an ageing population. We are going to be part of that aged and we all want to work together to make sure that we're living the life that we all want when we get to that position. 
because uh, Michael Perkins, we actually sort of know the sorts of things that do go wrong, don't we? We there's a lot of knowns, yeah. um, but it's uh, we haven't really been supporting people, have we, in the past? No, I think just like there's a myth in the law called the reasonable man, I think there's also a myth in the law called the competent client. <laughs> and I think that uh, as lawyers, we have relied on the assumption of capacity, and I think rightfully so for a long period, but the reality of the society that we have is that we have a significant cohort in the society of increasing longevity but declining ability. We haven't had that as a social uh, reality in uh, our communities before, but it's well and truly in front of us now. So I think the starting point is to stop uh, and don't forget, this is me as a, the lawyer talking. Stop thinking of supported decision-making as a legal solution and start thinking of supported decision-making as a methodology for advice or care. Supported decision-making is an approach to uh, being focused on the voice of uh, the person concerned. So if we start looking at that as a professional skill, we can start baking supported decision-making into day-to-day -day interactions with professionals, with people in business, uh, with people that have got front-end uh, contact with client, uh, customers like bank staff, and, uh, and starting to focus employers on saying, hey, we need to get listening skills in the workforce, not telling skills. People are sick and tired of being told. And I think one of the interesting uh, sidelights from the Hain Royal Commission is that we finally have had some admissions that um, compliance in financial services was all about uh, uh, disclosure uh, being sufficient because everyone had the ability to read, understand and respond to it. That's the very thing that's undermined by cognitive decline. So uh, what, is in, what is, as we say, the best interest of the client? Well, we can no longer assume that they can necessarily process the information we give them. So uh, I think the biggest question we have in the community now is how do we do informed consent better? That's the, whether we're in business, whether, whether we're in the professions, whether we're in the health system, whether we're in, we're in the aged care system, um, how we do justice to people as they exercise their ability to contract and engage, that's the stuff we've got to do better and we need to build better linkages between the professions and the community sector to achieve that. Yes, Carolyn, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to also make clear that... Um, Ability is on a spectrum. Decision-making ability particularly, it's on a, it's on a spectrum. Um, and so depending on the decision, depending on the context, um, there will be lots of different things that impact and affect someone's ability. If they're really stressed, they're going to slide further down that decision-making spectrum. If they're grieving, they're going to be further down that spectrum. If they've, they're sick, you know, they're, they're not healthy at that time, they've got a really bad cold or uh, what are all these different things that can affect people's ability. I think we want to be mindful of that because we can help people stay further up the decision-making spectrum by building their ability and capability to make more of their own decisions. So we've got to get that balance right um, in the supported space because at the essence of supported decision-making is where we can. It's building the capability capability or the capacity 
of the person. And if they can't be built because of cognitive decline, for example, then how can we build those supports around them, might be in the form of people or technology or even attitudinal, that we're able to keep them more autonomous? Michael? I think it's important to note, and I've got had the benefit of working with some neuropsychologists for a while now, Let's not think of mild cognitive impairment as a disease. It is a neurological state. So everything that uh, Carolyn is saying about the importance of context is absolutely correct. Uh, uh, just like we can't assume capacity we can't, uh, uh, necessarily because of cognitive decline, neither can we assume cognitive decline is disease-based or permanent. So the truth will always be in the situation. And what we really do need is uh, to have cost-effective access to decision support services that can help families unravel it for themselves uh, to the best extent possible. Those kind of initiatives are just starting to be built now. And uh, yes, it's early days, watch this space. But let's be very, very clear, mild cognitive impairment is not a disease. Mm. It's, some, it's a state of being that needs to be recognised, responded to, and support is simply the method by which we deal with a, a cognition that's less than optimal. So what's our objective? Our objective is to promote the autonomy of, the, of everyone in society and support the functioning of that autonomy as best we can, and then only have supported decision-making as a final resort when appropriate. Yes. And, uh, Kay, look, you and you and Carolyn are, are seeing people in crisis at sort of the very end yes. of a process. Uh, and when thinking about uh, will and preference and, and how we're going to help people make decisions and so forth, do you often find that people haven't got a will? A yes. physical will. So, yes, I do find that, yes. And, and that's really a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because they haven't ever thought about, in when they were cognitively better off, um, how they should, uh, how they want things to be when, when they're not, no longer around. That's right. Yeah. And, and in the absence of that, then there's legislation that sets out where, where their assets go that can cause any number of, of issues. So, you know, at least if they'd done a will when they were able to, then they would have had the opportunity to really sit down and think about who they'd like to get what. And that sort of gives a bit of a basis. And also, if the family is aware of what, what has been decided, then it, there's, there's less areas for dispute, there's less areas for people to, to feel aggrieved and that they should perhaps uh, have something that they shouldn't have. So, so in terms of a will, obviously that only comes in after somebody's passed away. So yes. there's, there's lots of disputes we see after somebody's passed away in terms of what people felt they should have received and didn't. Um, we also see arguments while the person is alive as well and under financial management. You know, it, it often comes out to pass that we see that uh, sums of money have been moved or there might be a, a family member living in the property with the person rent-free. Other family members are not happy with that situation and want them removed. And, and if there are people uh, within the family group that would be competent to perform functions for that, that person, whether it be their parent or uh, another relative, then, then they should really put it down in writing, shouldn't they? They should have a power of attorney in place ready for the time that they need it because you can't do it at another time, can you? That, so, so you can do a power of attorney whilst you have capacity. Yes. So 
I would recommend that you do a power of attorney when you have capacity and you really turn your mind to any number of situations that might occur. So, for example, even somebody in their 30s or 40s might like to have a think about, you know, if, if a property is in one, one partner's name, if they were still alive but, say, for example, had lost capacity, had to go into a nursing home, do they want the property to be sold and another property purchased in their sole name and to allow certain people to live in it? Do they want their funds to be able to be expended, you know, on their care at home? Do they have children that they want to be allowed to access funds? You know, I've had people put in parameters. For example, if my child's under 25, then they're allowed up to X dollars per year for the payment of school fees or university fees, etc. So they're really sitting down and having, having a think about it. And I suppose, Michael, in your practice, you'd find people with all sorts of uh, a a mosaic of different needs and ideas about this. Well, that's right. So um, my two cents worth is is that as important as wills, powers of attorney, powers of guardianship are, estate planning as a service, a bit like supported decision-making, is an approach or a methodology you can use to have those conversations earlier in the family. So uh, I think it's important for people to think of the outcome of uh, estate planning as not necessarily being a will or a power of attorney or a power of guardianship, but a plan for the administration of their estate, their stuff. And we put a fair amount of time into helping people describe how they want to be treated in the event of their uh, loss of capacity. So that uh, if the power of attorney comes for review by, uh, say, the Civil and Appeals Tribunal or an investigating authority, we have the voice of the client already embedded in the document. So uh, that's about as far as we can go as lawyers at the moment because the, the law is limited. But what we do find is that things like memorandum of wishes and a sta- and estate administration plans or just a letter that says, right, if something happens to me, this is how I want to be looked after, is a, uh, is a big step forward for a lot of families because it gets people thinking about that future state that they have to worry about. And I think where this lands neatly is in the idea of the ethics of ageing. What does your younger self owe your older self? Plan early, plan often, (laughs) and understand that uh, in this era of 1% uh, interest rates, families may have to get smart about how do we share the family capital to grease the wheels for... Up to four generations can be alive at the moment in one family unit. So maybe um, families need to be fiscally, financially smarter. Um, But all of that needs to be done in a way that responds to the actual welfare of the people under care. So supported decision-making, ethics of care, ethics of ageing, there are some solid touchstones there. But we have to weave it into professional practice that that is recognised irrespective of the discipline of the professional concerned. And there's also a few other little complexities coming in now that uh, we're into uh, a different sort of electronic age. What happens with uh, my my uh, picture, my photograph collection? It's it's all online now. Who gets control of that? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, it, not well, absolutely, but. Um, 
but that's a contractual problem, and that's yet another Law Reform Commission report that everyone's working on. But let's not worry. Well, and as significant as that is, the the main online providers are are responding to that and giving pathways for people to be able to deal with that. But the first thing you've got to do is create an inventory so you can understand what you've got. Second, you've got to uh, understand how you're managing security and passwords. But the $64 question is managing your devices. People need to think of with in this age of cybersecurity and every man and his dog relying on your smartphone, your, your weakest security point is in how you, do you manage your devices. Mm. And that... My oldest. I have trouble now. (laughs) (laughs) And let's not be aged. Someone else and try them try and work out how I've organised my devices. Absolutely. So So let's not be aged about this. My oldest client, with as an active email user, was a hundred. So let's start thinking about these problems as helping people with the consequences of ageing. I think we need to shift our thinking from life stages to life cycles. Our job as professionals is to help people with the challenges of their life cycle as they age. So um, getting better at that uh, is something that is, I think, an urgent need. And and I I didn't want to leave this area of documentation until we also mentioned uh, a guardianship or an advanced care directive, Carolyn. Sure. Because uh, when you're asked that question, under stress, in a hospital... Yes, we can do an operation. It has a percentage of uh, of success. It's a very hard decision, isn't it? Very hard decision, particularly when the person who um, is having the operation can't provide their own consent. Um, so preferable if someone has taken the time and thought to put in place an enduring guardianship document, which essentially chooses people that you trust and that know you really well to make decisions for you if you can't in the future in those health and lifestyle areas. And then the extension of that is the advanced care directive. So that relates to specific care and treatment um, towards the end of life. So what you do and don't want, and that really should be um, a living document because that can change depending on your health needs. But the thing that... But there might be some specific things as well. Someone might say, I do not want to be put on one of those heart-lung machines. Absolutely. They might say that. They mm. might say, I don't want Mm. penicillin if if I get... They they might say that, and they should put those in the document, They should absolutely put those things into the document, make it really clear, Um, because really what you're doing there, you're taking taking the um the burden for want of a better term away from your loved ones because you're making the decision Correct. it's still your voice and everyone is looking for what you would have wanted in that situation so if you've taken the time out to clearly document in an advanced care directive in that particular case they can go straight to that document and say this is what this person wants she doesn't want the extra chemo or she doesn't want the antibiotics and so we don't need to do that and it stops the family conflict as well you know my mother would have been alive today if my elder brother hadn't have allowed that operation to go ahead it's a you know, traumatic like that, yeah. it's a traumatic enough situation yeah. uh, for anyone um, and emotional for families and everyone in that situation wants to be focused on the one thing and the one person and that's the care and the love that they need at that time not the nitty-gritty about which medication they should or shouldn't have that can keep families together i've seen people even put in things like you know if i've got third degree burns to x percent of my body i don't want life prolonging treatment 
and and that was not imminent. They've really just sat down mm. and had to think about what they do or don't want. You know, if I have to have mm. certain limbs amputated, I don't want that to go ahead. Um, you know, so that way it's there in black and white. Yeah, and often people know these things, don't they, Michael? Well, they do, but I think there's also something to think about. When you're coming into this area of medical treatment and guardianship and, and healthcare decisions, the uh, College of General Practitioners has got a campaign on at the moment with GPs around advanced care planning. Now, uh, people often say to me, Michael, aren't lawyers expensive? And I said, no, lawyers charge by the complexity of the job. Now, give me a simple job and it'll be cheap. <laughs> but I think in this area of healthcare, don't forget your GP. Because if you get an advanced care planning document, and there are plenty of templates around Department of Health issued in the College of General Practitioners, everyone's got a template. But uh, if you go and sit down with your GP, Medicare is contributing. So you'll probably get the most effective completion of that advanced health care document in conjunction with your GP. And then if the GP's got qu questions and concerns about legal matters or other matters, then it can be escalated. So I think, you know, this is just an example of how we need to build better cooperation across professional boundaries. And the starting point for the in the community is for the simplest entry point. And I think on this issue of advanced care planning and writing it down and getting it clear, talking to your GP first is probably the best point to start. That's all we've got for you on Money Dearest for this podcast. I'd like to thank our panel, Kay Papadopoulos, Senior Solicitor at the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian, Carolyn Smith from the Supported Decision-Making Team at the New South Wales Public Guardian, and Michael Perkins, Special Counsel of the Nexus Law Group. Money Dearest is a podcast series focusing on financial elder abuse and is brought to you by the Sydney Community Foundation, the Perkins Family Foundation and to SERFM. Music for the series is by Kat Alchin and Poddington Bear. Do please give us a review at the end of the podcast if you can. We'll be looking at various types of elder abuse situations in upcoming podcasts, so do listen in to our next instalment. I'm Roderick Chambers. Thanks for listening. Music.